Let's begin with our text this morning in the book of Philippians. I'm going to finish up chapter 3 this morning. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's open in prayer. I thank you, Father, once again for the realization that your love is strong, that you have drawn us into your family, those who profess Christ as our Savior. And I thank you for the joy that brings. I thank you for the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. It's with Jesus. Uh, And I just thank you, Father, that that's our our long-term home. Uh, So I ask, Father, that you would help us this morning to gain a deeper appreciation and that you would transform our lives in some way as we come into contact with your word and think about it. Uh, Help us to apply it. Help us to understand how we can go about making it true in our lives. So I thank you, Father, that even though this last week there have been times, I'm sure, where we've disappointed you and others, I thank you that we have full forgiveness in Jesus. And ask, Father, that you would cleanse our hearts this morning, that you would help us to understand that uh, you cast our sins as far as the east is from the west into the deepest sea and remember them no more. Uh, So, Father, help us this morning as we once again consider what it is you have before us. Help us make the decisions in our lives, whatever they might be, that would best honor you, because that's our real desire. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the day, uh, Marty and I led you through the book of Genesis. And you remember the book of Genesis began with God creating the heavens and the earth. And the highlight of that was the pinnacle of that creation was the creation of man and woman, who are made binary in God's own image. An essential focus of imaging God was worship. And for a short time, it looks like, at least in Genesis, that they enjoyed close contact with their creator, which is actually pictured as them walking with him. And God fully intended that Adam and Eve grow ever closer to him by spending time with him in a close relationship of learning more of him and imitating him as they learn how to put their trust in him and put that into practice in loving obedience. So over time, the idea was that they would become more and more like God since they were designed by God to become like their focus. Now God's image in man was seriously marred when Adam and Eve sinned by setting aside their worship of him in favor of making themselves the center of their universe. And of course, the effects of that cosmic treason affect us even today. Every person born into this world is in a situation where we automatically choose anything that we can substitute for our true creator. The Bible calls that sin, which is our willful disobedience to the one who made us. Now, because of Adam's sin, The image of God was seriously distorted, but it wasn't obliterated entirely. God decided that mankind would continue to be worshipers, but not of him unless he intervened. 
He left intact, though, that we would take on the characteristics of what we do worship. Of course, if we don't worship him, we worship a substitute. But we will worship. We're made to. And if we don't worship him, we're guilty of what he calls idolatry. And God's not shy about telling us what happens when our lives worship anything but him. I'll give you one example from Psalm 115. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. So God lays out the principle that we become like the object of our worship. And since we can't help but worship, whether the object is ourselves or you name it, power, money, sex, security, safety, whatever it might be, he says we end up being as foolish and as spiritually lifeless as our idols. We will end up imitating, walking with the object of our worship and becoming just less dumb and unfeeling as they are. This not only works in a positive way, it also works in a negative way. If you hold a resentment or bitterness towards another person, that other person now becomes your focus. And you'll end up becoming just like the person that you don't like. Which is why God says, keep short accounts and don't allow resentment to build. So the Paul, Apostle Paul is using this letter to the church at Philippi to reiterate his strategy among them, which he teaches God's principles by example. He had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ among them earlier on with considerable success. And there was a growing church, and they had a special relationship with Paul. They, they were the ones who were his closest supporters in a lot of ways. They would always find ways to creatively supply the needs that he knew that he had because he was preaching the gospel kind of on their behalf. So as Christians, Paul had taught them how to change the focus of their worship from the idols of the culture to the God who had given them new life in Jesus. But that change doesn't happen overnight. It had been 10 years since he'd started that church, and now he was in chains in the city of Rome. So he's reminding him of his love and his prayers for them and to encourage them to continue their walk with Christ by following his example. So, so far in this letter, what Paul has done is he's modeled a Christ-focused heart that responds to suffering and values others' needs more highly than its own. He's lifted their sights to the height of Christ's lowly servanthood, shown in the depth, really, of his death on the cross. He's commended Timothy and Epaphroditus, two of his disciples, men who would soon come to Philippi, to show, who would show Christ's concern for them just like Paul did. And his own life story, he says, showed the futility of striving to establish his own right standing before God, contrasted with the priceless treasure of gaining Christ and resting in his righteousness. And finally, Paul, just before this section we looked at this morning, he's just, he's just summoned the mature, he says, to mimic his maturity by admitting that they are far from being fully mature, and by joining him, he says, in the prize for what lies ahead. This morning, what Paul does, he shows several contrasting relationships that help us better strive toward the pride to this upward calling in Christ Jesus. So he, he contrasts now two competing directions, two competing destinations, two paths that people walk 
to reach them, these destinations, and two rival groups of guides who show the way. So I'm going to break this down. First of all, we're looking at the, the two groups of guides in our walk, where he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Our tendency, at least for some of us, is to think that we gain wisdom by more book learning. Of course, we can learn a lot through books and podcasts, but the mindset of Christ, his life purpose, his life direction, requires God's grace plus observation and practice. Now, we learn wisdom, which is kind of a special combination of insight and skill. We learn wisdom first by watching others exhibit it, and then by trying to duplicate what we've seen. Anybody that raises children understand this is what you're trying to do. When God called Abraham, he didn't say, you need to ascribe to these commandments, right principles, and correct beliefs. Instead, what God told Abraham was, go from your country, go from your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Walk with me. Did Abraham respond by answering an altar call or confessing some kind of an approved system of belief or by reciting the latest creed? No, all the scripture says is that, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. He didn't say a word. He got his feet moving in response to God's leading. Which is also the pattern that we see exemplified in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Sure, I mean, Jesus was big on belief, we all know that, but he's even bigger on exhorting people to get in line and follow him. I mean, Jesus' ministry was different from most other rabbis during that time in that Jesus taught while he walked. He would have worn out a Fitbit. If you take all the Gospels together, either Jesus says, follow me, or the author says they followed him about a hundred times. Jesus wanted companionship because he knew that his concept, his understanding of who God was and what the kingdom was, was communicated by word and example. Because he often followed verbal instruction with lab experiences. So his disciples would really learn the concept that he was teaching. For example, in one instance, Jesus got into a boat alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he taught a large crowd on land about the nature of the kingdom of God, using parables. And then he got together with his disciples to one side, and he explained the meaning of those parables, so that they could understand that the kingdom of God really was embodied in him, and they needed to respond in faith. They needed to trust him as their sovereign king. Then he followed his teaching session with a lab experience. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid, you who just had the lecture on faith? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So he taught them about faith, and then he gave them the opportunity to respond so that each one of them could see if he really understood the point of his teaching. And obviously, they didn't. 
But he didn't quit. He continued using the same kind of a process. And he used this approach all the time as he's traversing Israel several times, accompanied by his disciples. Well, Paul used the same basic approach. Because just in case we miss earlier hints in this letter, Paul spells it out point blank. He says, imitate me. Think as I do. Do as I do. Pursue what I pursue. And Philippi really is not unique in this regard. I mean, Paul called other churches to imitate him as well. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach him everywhere in every church. I don't know if I could ever say that. That sounds like it takes a lot of courage, doesn't it, to say, be imitators of me. But not only to the Philippians does Paul stress so strongly how imperative it is for his friends to follow his lead together. Literally, he's, he's saying here, become, and matter of fact, Paul invents a word here, become co-mimics of me. Not just copy me, but he says, together, copy me. We're going to do this together. He's with them on this. So imitating Christ by imitating Paul becomes not just an individual task, but it's a family project. We can see this because he fixes their gaze not just on himself, but he says, but also on others who walk according to the example you have in us. And of course, so far, he just mentioned previously, Timothy and Epaphroditus are the role models that he mentions in particular. So he's just urged them to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. And now he continues with, watch carefully. We'll show you how to run this race to grip more completely the Christ who has gripped us. Because it's in his grace that we rest while we run. So Paul's emphasis really is on who we are in Christ. And that's not a statement about where we come from, but rather a statement about where we're going. We're not to live in the past, but we're living the present with an eye to the future. As I discussed last week, we live in the, this, the present evil age on earth, even though we are citizens at the same time of God's kingdom. So this is the situation that we find ourselves in, which is why you always feel pulled two ways. Here is where we live today. It's going to continue on until the resurrection, until Jesus returns, the general resurrection. And so here's the cross. Here's Jesus' resurrection. At that point, the age to come was ushered in. That's going to go on forever. Right now, we're kind of in this middle section here where we're experiencing this evil age, which is where our physical bodies are located, and the age to come, which we call heaven or the new earth, the new heavens, basically God's kingdom. So we're experiencing, we're experiencing both at the same time, which is why you feel a lot of times like you're in tension. So the kingdom is here in the presence of Jesus, but it's not here yet in its final form. And this one is often the, something the church gets confused about. There are a number of people today that believe that, you know, that uh, uh, those promises that are really intended, I think, for the time when Jesus returns are now to be lived today. No sickness, no death, so on and so forth. Uh, that's actually future, not necessarily here. So the kingdom of Christ is already here, but it's not here yet in its final form. But Paul hastens to add, he says, I'm not the only guy that's available to you. I'm not the only one that you can learn from. I mean, you need to imitate 
my faith and that of my disciples, especially Timothy and Epaphroditus, but there's other guides available to you in Philippi whose path does not lead to life, but it leads to destruction. Now, in our day, if you warn the church about false teachers, you're labeled as an alarmist or a conspiracy theorist or worst. Instead, we're encouraged to focus on the positive and not worry about doctrinal error. But the Apostle Paul repeatedly, he says, I often told you, warned the Philippians about these promoters of a false version of Christianity. And one of the primary tasks of us elders is to guard the flock from wolves who come in sheep's clothing. So who are these dangerous false teachers that Paul's addressing here? Well, he's writing about people who probably circulated among the churches, itinerant individuals probably, professing to be Christians. So he's not talking about pagans or outsiders. I mean, he wouldn't have been so deeply disturbed because he says, I'm warning you with tears if it were just pagans because he understood that's how pagans live. They live for sensual pleasure. They live for just things on this earth because that's all they've got. But he was upset because these people claiming to be Christians didn't live that way. You don't want to imitate these people. They cause a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstandings in the church at large. Now, a lot of commentators think that these people he's talking about were the Judaizers, you know, these people who tried to get people to comply with the Jewish law that he he talked about earlier uh, in the same chapter. The, the problem is that the people he's talking about here seem to be more inclined to loose, immoral living than to those legalistic practices of how to gain God's favor by doing the right things. So Paul is warning about people who turned the grace of God into immorality, who took their freedom from the Jewish law kind of off the deep end into supposed total freedom from God's moral law. I can do what I want. But Paul is saying that citizens of this earth really are enemies of the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ really is a central principle of the gospel and of the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As I mentioned before, when he warned the church leaders in Ephesus, uh, where he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So I'm going to address this morning uh, false teaching that's making an inward into the church today with a kind of surprising, at least my surprising speed. And you may not recognize it as being a, uh, a false teaching or heresy. It comes in a lot of different forms. It comes in stealth forms. Uh, but I'm going to join uh, an individual, Dr. Owen Strawn, and use the general term wokeness. So I found a couple of good resources, I think, if you're interested in pursuing this any further, that are straightforward, fairly easy to read. Because when you hear things like critical theory, CRT, critical race theory, if you hear the terms like, um, let's see, white privilege, systemic racism, defund the police, anti-racism, white fragility, distributive justice, you are hearing terms have been co-opted by the progressive wokeness movement. It's been operating underground since at least the 1960s and probably before that, thanks to Karl Marx. But beginning last year, it became open. It laid all the cards on the table. 
What's interesting is that it didn't just stay in the culture at large. Of course, it began to move into the church. And when it moves into the church, its true colors begin to show up as the heresy that it is, with a worldview that is totally contrary to the plain teachings of the Bible. And this is a pretty strong movement. If you, I don't know if you've passed or saw any information about the, the last convention that the Southern Baptist Church had. This became a big issue because people are saying this, this critical race approach, this wokeness, is a way of actually analyzing society and the church should adopt it. Well, we need to look at this because Christians believe that all persons were made in the image of God as one race, as the human race. So every person has intrinsic worth and dignity, no matter what their melanin content is, no matter what their ethnicity is, no matter what their gender is, no matter what their strength is, no matter how old they are, whether they're pre-born or, or outside the womb. So on this basis, oppression of the poor and weak is always condemned. Because white, neither, neither right, neither power, nor wealth makes things right. So on this basis, considering from a Christian standpoint, oppression of the poor and the weak is always condemned, has been throughout the history of the church. Christianity emphasizes the, the spiritual and moral equality of all people. So not only do we all share the same humanity, but we all suffer from the same problem, sin, and we're all in need of the same solution, salvation through Jesus. So because of these ideas, Christianity is the sole historical source of concepts that we used to take for granted. Human dignity, human equality, universal human rights. Those are Christian concepts. And this is why it's accurate, I think, to call wokeness a Christian heresy. Because wokeness fastens on to the Christian idea that oppression is evil, but it makes the sole significant fact about humanity and society, or rejecting so much else that Christianity teaches, like original sin, forgiveness, and salvation. Critical theory and woke rhetoric resonates with a lot of Christians. It sounds good, because the appeal really is rooted, when you think about it, in legitimate biblical concerns about the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the potential misuse of power. That's its entry point. But then it begins to fail on a lot of other levels. First of all, Critical theory misrepresents who we are by assuming that the only relevant fact about us is where we fit within one of two categories of oppression. And it says our core identity is the group we belong to, not me as an individual, the group we belong to, and you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. So it rejects any universals that would unite humanity, including the image of God. And secondly, the understanding of sin or what's wrong with the human condition is limited to oppression. Oppressors are guilty, and oppressed are innocent. So human guilt before God, that we're all broken and sinful, that we're all in need of forgiveness and redemption, is replaced by a moral reckoning that is dependent on what group you belong to. You're either oppressed or you're an oppressor. If your skin lacks the right amount of melatonin, you're automatically an oppressor, regardless of how you live your life, and there's no change possible. So given its failure to diagnose sin, it's not surprising that critical theories lack an adequate understanding of salvation. Essentially, there is none. Because the guilt of certain parties and the moral superiority of other groups is fixed and it's perpetual. 
So it means that forgiveness and reconciliation are ruled out. Even for the oppressed, there's no path for healing. There's no bearing one another's burdens. There's no easing of the burden of pain by forgiving one another. So playing off legitimate concerns with, about racism, wokeness reframes the gospel. I mean, the real problems with race and injustice in America, of course, have to be addressed, and they have been, and are continuing to be addressed. But, but any expression of this wokeness or critical theory it fails even as an analytical tool for Christians because it's built on a flawed and a contrary worldview. It seeks to replace the gospel of hope with an anti-gospel of guilt and despair and no way out. So Paul continues his description by talking about individuals in, in verse 19. He says, these guides who would lead us down this path, he, said, he says their end is destruction. And Paul says any path that conflicts with what Paul has taught in this letter, he says, is leading to eternal punishment, not to some temporal judgment. Scripture teaches that those who reject God's mercy at the cross are going to be cast into the lake of fire where they'll endure eternal punishment. So destruction here means eternal ruin or loss, which is not an easy or pleasant teaching, but it is the clear teaching of the Lord Jesus, who more than anybody else taught about hell. He goes on and says, well, their God is their appetite, which means they live for selfish and sensual pleasures rather than denying self in order to live for Christ. Of course, the Bible doesn't promote some kind of a self-imposed denial of, of all pleasures. It means of making yourself pure and getting right with God, but it does teach that God has richly, richly supplied us with all things to enjoy. But if we, we move God from the center as the chief object of our joy and our peace and replace it with some earthly pleasure, we're back to idolatry. He says these false teachers actually gloried in their shame. They boasted in their supposed freedom, when in reality they're slaves to their lusts. And they set their minds on earthly things, he says. And one form this takes in our day is our emphasis on how Christ can make you happy in the here and now, and suffering in any form is because you lack faith. If you just had more faith, you wouldn't be suffering all these things. We don't put earthly comfort and happiness at the center of our life. Paul says that setting our minds on Christ and the things above is the key to dealing with sin and relational problems. So, so Paul's point here is that as citizens of heaven, Christians don't live as citizens of this earth, who are the enemies, he says, of the cross of Christ, who are headed for eternal destruction, and who live for the things of this earth. And keep in mind, too, these people are known to the church, making a profession of knowing Christ, but he says, they're not serving Christ. Don't imitate these people. Because actions are a more certain evidence of what people truly are than their words. I mean, Jesus said that we can spot false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, by their fruit, by their deeds. And Paul warned of those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed in his letter to Titus. Again, this does not mean that believers are sinless, but if a believer in Jesus Christ sins, that person is going to make it right by confessing that sin, by seeking forgiveness, and trying to rectify the problem if it's possible. So we need to look at the walk, not just the words. Which is another reason why we need to spend time together as the body of Christ, so that we can help one another function this way. So he's, he teaches that there are two contrasting paths for us to walk with two sets of guides, one for each path. 
Then he concludes this section by explaining that there is also two competing destinations. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we're moving forward to one of two destinations. He says either upward to Christ or in heaven or downward to the grave in hell. And God wants us to be governed by homesickness for this one. Because where we, who we are is not really dependent on where we came from, but really depends on where we're going. If we're not living for our forever home, we're just vulnerable to the next attractive idea that comes along to enslave us. And if you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to wait for the second coming of Christ to know where your home is. You know right now. When you trust Christ, your name is sealed on the citizen rolls of heaven because that's where your king lives. And when he comes, your citizenship comes with him. And where he is, there you have the privilege and the right to be, and you'll be with him forever. No passport required. And the, body, the, 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 the bodily return of Jesus Christ in power and glory is one of the most frequently emphasized truths in the New Testament. Matter of fact, it's mentioned in every book in the New Testament that I can figure out, except Galatians and the short books of Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John. It shows up every place else in some way. So there's a lot of debates about the particulars, but there's really no debate about the certainty that Jesus is coming back in a bodily form. Just as he promised that he came the first time to die for our sins and kept his word, so also remember he promised his last words as he ascended to heaven, he promised to return in the same way that he left. And when he comes, it's going to be in power to rule and to reign. And a couple of major things are going to happen. First is, he's going, to, he's going to transform our lowly bodies, which are subject to disease and death and prone towards sin, into conformity to his resurrection body. This is going to involve not just an outward physical change, in which we receive bodies that aren't subject to disease and death anymore, but also an inward spiritual transformation, where we're finally delivered completely from not just the, the power of sin, but from sin itself. Also, when Jesus comes, Paul says, he's going to subject all things to himself. So if you're not willing to be subject to him now, you're going to be forced into subjection by him at that point. His enemies will bow before him, willingly or not. He will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And because of this, you really need to make certain that you're in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ now, so he comes as your savior and not as your judge. I think it's safe to say that the extent to which we wait for his coming reveals the condition of our hearts before him. Because citizens of heaven long for his appearing. They long for creation not to have to groan anymore for the sons of God to be revealed. So in the present, Christ is actually seated above all rule, authority, power, and dominion even though these evil powers are still active in the world. But he rules over them, seated at the right hand of God, invisibly performing his influence while they still have some sway on the earth. And then comes the contrast. In 1 Corinthians 15, maybe one of the best places to see this, in verses 22 to 24, where he says, So in Adam all die, so also in Christ all should be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that's his resurrection, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So there is a difference. In this age, before the second coming of Christ, Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power, and does his saving work, drawing individuals to himself. But in that day, he says, every rule and authority and power will be destroyed. Opposition is going to be over. And Christ reigns until that work is complete. And then Paul adds, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 20 puts it this way, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And he says, then Christ will hand over the kingdom to God the Father, and God then will be all in all. And through Christ and through his body, his people, God is going to reign forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. At that point, his people will be from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, whom God has made a kingdom and priest to be to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever and ever. That's my kind of citizenship. That's where I want to be. And that's our future as followers of Jesus. And therefore, Paul says, we're citizens of heaven where our Savior, he says, awaits us. In the meantime, the Apostle Peter reminds us in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 that as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, strangers and pilgrims, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, the Christians in Philippi knew what it was like to live as sojourners, as aliens. I mean, they were far from the city of Rome, but they lived by Roman laws. This was a Roman colony. So they, they wore Roman clothes. They wrote their documents in Latin, not Greek. Their architecture was Roman. The whole place looked like Rome, but it wasn't Rome. That's kind of similar to what it's like to be a Christian. We're living the Christian life absent from the Christian capital, which, to your great relief, I'm sure, is not going to be Olympia or Washington, D.C. <laughs> and when we live as aliens, as sojourners, he says, then he says, Paul says, that's where we're going to make an impact. So here's some questions to think about. Do you realize the potential that you have? Are you focused on where you truly belong? Are you letting people around you know that you come from another place and you're going to another place? That you're not going to be trapped, they're not going to trap you in the sickness of contemporary culture? That you're prepared to say, I'm different. I come from a different place. I march with a different drumbeat. I serve a different commander. I'm constrained by different impulses. Is your citizenship in heaven? Have you laid down the arms of unbelief and rebellion against Christ? Have you received the blood-bought amnesty that he offers all rebels? regardless of what race you want to choose. Have you bowed the knee of submission and loyalty to the king of the universe now? And if not, you need to do that today. And then join the citizens in heaven who await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And then Paul concludes this section by saying, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved. In case you missed it the first time. Now I'm treating 
first verse of chapter 4 as a conclusion to chapter 3. You could do it two ways. I think this makes more sense. So therefore here, you want to find out why it's therefore, it means in light of this truth and in light of his coming and in light of our citizenship, he says, stand firm in the Lord. <laughs> that was, he has a lot of care and concern for these people. Look at the terms that he uses. He says, my beloved brethren, my joy and my crown, then again, my beloved. He's trying to get it across in the fact that he's not preaching down to them. He's saying, we're all in this together. And you're my fellow workers. You're my fellow brothers and sisters. And he says, and I love you. And he says, and I long to see you, he says. But especially he wants to see them standing firm in the Lord, not swayed by any false teachers. And Christianity is knowing Christ himself and being found in him. He is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our all in all. He's our sufficiency for every need. He's our refuge. He's our rock in times of trouble. So Paul is saying, stand firm on the rock. Stand firm in the Lord. Sure, we're going to have new bodies. They'll be like his glorious body. Our present bodies came from dust. Those are going to be heavenly bodies. Our present bodies are weakened by sin, by desire. They're subject to breakdown. Some of us really know well. To disintegration. But he says we're going to get a whole new deal. Therefore, he says, in light of this, let me tell you what to do. Live for the things that will last. This is how you stand firm in the Lord. Live for the long term. Don't live for the short term satisfaction. But he's also saying, beloved, all you have to do to live for this life alone is nothing. You don't have to go out and seek to live as if this world is the cat's meow. You don't have to seek that. It's already looking for you. It knows where you live. It knows your street address. It knows your email. It knows your cell phone. It knows your heart. So unless you resolve not to buy into the lie that's all around you, you're going to be sucked in. You don't. We live as citizens of our future real home, and to live otherwise doesn't require any effort at all. Well, advances in, uh, in medical technology and the rise of democratic values and so on have obviously changed life in our world. But 2020 and 2021 has exposed just how fragile that change is. Think about it. An imported virus that we helped develop laid the modern world low. Western values left Afghanistan with that first American plane out of Kabul. Despite the changes in science and technology, the world is as uncontrollable as it has ever been, and probably more uncontrollable. And I think as Christians, we should be appalled at what we saw this last week. It breaks our heart, but we shouldn't be shocked. We should know that any concept of real human progress is a myth. And pointing to the calendar really is never an argument for anything. There is no right side of history. And no Christian should be scandalized by that these things still happen in 2021. Instead, there should be heartbreak and action wherever we can. But those really should flow out of a deep-seated knowledge of the world's instability, not being shocked and offended by it. This knowledge is obvious to our Christian forebears. But it's obscured to us by this bubble wrap padding of modern life and this whole myth of progress. As long as we're content to stay within that padding... We're never going to honor this tragedy or the next one. 
Remember where your true citizenship lies. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words that you've given us. They're, they're words of hope and joy, and yet there's also the undercurrent of being alert, of standing firm, of knowing where the truth lies so that we can detect error. Give us discernment, Father, not to just jump at things that crop up because they're different, but to try to understand what's going on around us and try to figure out ways to meet the needs of those who are, have fallen captive to some of these strange ideas. Help us, Father, to be vigilant, to be citizens of heaven, to understand where we're going, to not concentrate on where we are or where we've been, but to look forward to what you have in mind for us in the future. And the fact that part of that future, that power and strength, that ability to share your word, that your, your gospel is present now. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you that even though things look ugly on the outside and we see world events that just totally break our hearts, I thank you, Father, that you understand all this too and you are using all of this to bring individuals to yourself. So use us, Father, to that end too because we know that's your desire and we want to live for your desires. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.